Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Hubner, and today we have episode 25, Carthage, a new city, a new hope. As always, visit the website at maritimehistorypodcast.com for maps, source lists, and explanatory images for each and every episode. You'll also find info about how you can help support the podcast. If only half of you who listen would elect to join the crew as supporting members, then I could devote all of my time to producing more content with more depth more often, and all for you. I'd love to make the podcast my job, but no matter what, the show will always remain free of charge and free of ads. There is a little incentive, though, as thanks from me, supporting members get access to bonus episodes, full PDF transcripts with images and maps, and a detailed timeline. So, if your heart belongs to the sea, or if you just enjoy the podcast, please consider becoming a crew member, gaining access to the crew member content, and helping the podcast continue to grow. My lasting gratitude to those of you who have already joined the crew as well. On this ocean of life, may all your landfalls be expected. Now on to the history for today. Think of any great city, nation, or empire, and I bet you could fairly quickly also think of its foundation story or myth. Rome is perhaps the most well-known, and the myth of Rome's founding is also easy to recall. The city's name harkens back to the brother who prevailed in the mythical sibling rivalry, over which hill should be the site of their new settlement. Athens was likewise named for Athena after she prevailed over Poseidon in their competition. Myths sprouted quickly after the founding of America as well, Time plays no favorites when it comes to such matters. This line applies to places as well as time periods. Take the foundation myths of Tenochtitlan, for instance. Most, if not all, peoples around the world have mythologies to explain the origins of their major cities and their societies as a whole. We've already discussed the foundation myths behind the great Phoenician city of Tyre, and today we move on to her greatest colony and how it may or may not have begun. The myth surrounding the foundation of Carthage is a tangled web running through the mythologies and histories of Greece and Rome. Sources cited in the Greco-Roman versions are lost to us today, and the prejudice that the Greek and Roman historians so liberally sprinkled throughout their versions well, it makes our task all the more difficult. I'll not necessarily attempt to untangle the web entirely, but we can hit the main points and sources in the myth of Kart Hadasht, Tyre's new city in northern Africa. Virgil is probably the most well-known source of one version of the myth. Being the Roman historian that he was, Virgil backdated the foundation of Carthage to the time of the Trojan War, and he did this because his mention of Carthage came in the Aeneid, which he wrote down in the years around 25 BCE. Given that Virgil then wrote during Augustan Rome, which occurred a hundred years after the last of the Punic Wars, 
It should come as no surprise that when he claimed Trojan ancestry for Rome, he also sought to foreshadow the rise of one of Rome's greatest enemies. Now, I thought I was going to try and summarize both the Aeneid's treatment of Carthage and how first-century Roman feelings toward salted over Carthage factor into Virgil's poem. But after some thought, I decided that such a discussion would probably fit better into our look at the Punic Wars themselves. We'd be able to get a better grasp on all the dynamics at play, and on all the underlying mentality behind the Aeneid and all of Rome's treatment of Carthage and the Phoenicians. So that being said, just keep in mind that Virgil gave us his treatment of Carthage and its myth when he wrote the Aeneid. Also, the cover image for today's episode is a painting by the romantic painter J.M.W. Turner, and it was inspired by the Aeneid's depiction of the Carthage Foundation myth. It was also the only decent image I could find that would work as cover art. So there you go. I think there's a good connection at least. Now, beyond Virgil, there were much older sources for the founding myth of Carthage, and the most complete of those comes from a contemporary of Virgil, a man named Gnaeus Pompeius Trogus. The actual history written by Trogus has also been lost, but a writer named Justinus wrote an epitome of the original Philippic history. An epitome, back in this time, was a summary of a larger work, so Justinus probably summarized matters in his own words, sprinkled a few quotes here and there. Maybe we could even rechristen our podcast here an epitome of maritime history, the podcast. Let me know your thoughts. It gives the podcast a feeling of antiquity, which, now that I think about it, is maybe bad marketing. They say to aim for the young audience or something like that. So we'll just leave the name as it is. Anyway, since Trogus summarized by Justinus is also writing late in the game, we should take his tale with as large a pinch of salt as we'd take with Virgil's version in the Aeneid. The Trogus tale does, however, carry fewer overtly political undertones, despite the fact that he brings it up in the context of Carthaginian military activity against Rome and Greece. So, some historians do hold the view that the version we're about to look at could contain within it some traces of Carthaginian influence, remnants of their own myths perhaps, but other historians dismiss this possibility and say that the Trogus version is also just a Romanized denigration of the Carthaginians and where they originated. In this version of the story, the action is centered on a woman named Elissa. She's called Dido in the Aeneid, but it's the same person. The story goes that in 831 BCE, the king of Tyre died. Before his death, he'd decreed that the kingdom was to be divided between his son Pygmalion and his daughter Elissa. We're not told why the king wished to divide his kingdom, but in the end, the king's order didn't matter all that much. The people rose up to crown Pygmalion, the sole ruler, and in an attempt to solidify his control over the city, he had Elissa's husband killed. 
It's not totally relevant to the story, it comes in a little bit later, but it does relate to our talk of Melkart last time, so I'll mention that Elissa's husband was the high priest of Melkart in Tyre. You'd think that killing the high priest might set loose some bad karma upon Pygmalion, but he supposedly reigned for a long time in Tyre. We'll come back to that possibility later on in our story as well. Elissa's murdered husband had been a wealthy man, and after some sneaky planning, she managed to gather some ships, some disaffected nobles of the city, and a rather healthy stock of gold and other wealth from her husband's trove. In a nod to the Tyrian tradition of seeking Melkart's blessing before they founded a new colony, as we saw with Cadiz last time, Elissa and the other fleeing Tyrians sacrificed to the god before they boarded their ship and fled Tyre en route to the island of Cyprus. They made a brief stop on the island, and while they were there, Elissa's contingent managed to add 80 Cyprian daughters to their number. Not exactly 80 willing daughters, but 80 women of childbearing age nonetheless. You see, Elissa intended to found a new city, and a fertile group of settlers is important for any colonizing venture, as I'm sure you well understand. The stopover in Cyprus also gave Justinus, the chronicler of the story, a chance to drop a hint about where the story was going to go. Pygmalion had heard about his sister's flight rather quickly after she left. Cyprus isn't that far away from Tyre and he purposed to pursue her and seize the traitors and the gold that they had taken with them. His intentions solidified. Pygmalion was, however, dissuaded by the gods, who told him that, quote, he would not escape with impunity if he interrupted the founding of a city that was to become the most prosperous in the world. By this means, some respite was given to the fugitives, and their story carries on. They leave Cyprus and they arrive in Africa at the already existent Phoenician colony of Utica, in fact, and the locals welcome them with open arms. As the Phoenicians didn't yet use coinage, the locals and the newcomers bartered. It seems to be a common theme in colonial histories that the arrival of foreign goods is the trigger for a barrage of barter exchange. Elissa, being the shrewd royal that she was, concocted a plan when a local offered her people possession of whatever land she could cover with an ox hide. She commanded the Tyrian refugees to cut the hide into very thin strips, and laying the strips end to end in as big an area as they could enclose, they, quote, covered an area that proved to be much larger than the area the offerer had anticipated. He couldn't break his word, though, so Elissa ended up with an area of ground that became known as the Bursa. It was still called this after Carthage had become a powerful city, and a walled citadel on the city's central hill was called Bursa throughout its history. It's still referred to that today, actually, in the archaeological site. This name is one point around which theories swirl, where some historians believe that an ancient artifact of linguistics may lay buried in the sands of mythology. 
it seems likely that the name of the city's central hill was derived from the Akkadian word for fortress or citadel, the word Bertu. However, there's also the possibility that the Greek historians who ultimately wrote down these myths about Carthage were just importing a double meaning. They never really could pass up the opportunity to drop in a witty or unique homonym. The Greek word for an oxhide was bursa, spelled B-U-R-S-A, and the hill's name was also bursa, but spelled B-Y-R-S-A. So maybe the Greeks just added in the oxide elements to the story to give their Greek readers a chuckle, a little inside joke, but who knows for sure, really. In any event, the city was founded. A horse head was dug up in the foundation site, pretending that the people would become warlike and powerful. The traditional date of the founding, then, is 814 BCE. The conclusion of this story, as epitomized by Justinus, is almost more of a tragic scene from Shakespeare than it is an ancient myth. The city grows rapidly, almost immediately becoming a hub of trade in the central Mediterranean. Elissa's success and growing influence becomes a focus of jealous resentment for a nearby king, though. His name was Hierobus of Libya, and his personal solution to the jealousy was to threaten war unless Elissa promised to marry him. Elissa, though, remained loyal to the memory of her murdered husband and to the promise of her cart Hadasht, her new city. She told the town elders to construct a pyre so she could sacrifice to the memory of her dead husband before she made her personal sacrifice of marriage in order to save her city. The curtain drops on the story, however, as she stabs herself to death while falling into the flames of the pyre, a solution that saves the city and fulfills her wish to remain loyal to her husband's memory. A postscript tells us that, as long as Carthage remained unconquered, she was worshipped as a goddess. This is the least Hellenized of Carthage's founding myths, but let's go ahead and see now what we can dig up in the way of actual history, see if we can find any confirmation of this myth's truth or falsehood. To start, let's tackle the date when the city was founded. Getting it placed in the timeline properly will help us get a good idea of how the city related to everything else that was going on in the world around it. The traditional date, as we saw, is 814. This date is derived from the fact that several ancient historical sources all gave this date in their claims, and until recently the oldest archaeological finds at the site of the original city were also dated between 750 and 700 BCE. Timaeus of Sicily uses this date by saying that Carthage was founded 38 years before the first Greek Olympiad but most scholars agree that the dates given by Timaeus are notoriously unreliable. Some more recent archaeological work has revealed a different and more complete picture, it seems. Now, I do realize that such dating work can be controversial, and that different archaeologists back different theories. 
That gets even more complicated with a city like Carthage, since it was infamously subjected to merciless conquest by Scipio's Roman legions, or at least that's how that story goes as well. Augustus later sacked part of the ruins in order to rebuild the Roman version of the city, so no matter what, the ancient most parts of the city likely underwent major transformation at points in the distant past. In any event, some of the ancient most layers survived in part, and today they are buried over five meters beneath the Roman city, not far above sea level, in fact. Digs to study these bottommost layers of Carthage have revealed traces of dwellings with walls of sun-dried brick, streets, and wells, forming a structure of large isolated houses, separated by squares of gardens. The key part there is that recent digs have only revealed traces of these things, but traces are enough to reach some basic conclusions at least. These conclusions actually align quite nicely with those that we saw last time in our look at the founding of the Western colonies, like Hadar and Malacca, or Cadiz and Malaga. For a long time, it was thought that those colonies were founded later in Phoenician history also, around 750 BCE, like the theory was about Carthage. Recent work has pushed that date back to around 900 BCE, or thereabouts. The same holds true for Carthage. Current dating places the oldest Phoenician level of the city at 865 BCE, give or take a few decades. Obviously, it takes a little time to build a city, so the ballpark date of 900 to 870 BCE for the founding period of Carthage is within reason. Really, this trend is promising, and I think it will prove that these theories hold water in the long term. Although some ancient historians used the 814 date, perhaps in simple repetition of a date that they'd seen elsewhere, if we look to other ancient historians, we actually find some support for the earlier dating of the city's foundation. Strabo, for instance, connects the founding of the Iberian colonies with the founding of Carthage, saying that they occurred during the same period of Phoenician expansion and colonization. Still, other historians help us verify the founding time frame, not by talk of the city's founding necessarily, but by linking matters back to Elissa, the fabled founder of the city, and her family of Tyrian royal blood. The short version is that Josephus discussed the Phoenician cities and Tyrian kings in relation to his history of the Jews. Remember how he said that Jewish kings were involved in treaties with King Hiram, and the Phoenician shipping machine was put to use in the building of Solomon's temple? Well, in discussing the kings of Tyre, Josephus takes his material from an older historian, Menander of Ephesus. Menander wrote a history of Tyre, and even though it's also been lost to us, which seems to be a trend today, Josephus preserves at least a few ideas from Menander's history. One of those was a few bits of chronology. Supposedly, Tyre kept a royal history. It's called the Annals of Tyre by some historians, 
and when Tyre was conquered by Alexander the Great, the annals were sent to Carthage for safekeeping. Carthage didn't prove to be any safer in the long run, as you probably know already, and the annals were lost for good. Another mark in the trend. Anyway, Menander, through Josephus, gives a chronology that establishes Carthage as being a little bit older than the traditional date. His timeline puts it near to 870 BCE. This time frame would align it with the establishment of the other colonies further west. It would really make Carthage just another among Tyre's many established colonies during the period when the Assyrians and Syrians were becoming more aggressive back east, but just before Tyre had its hands tied in earnest. The archaeology again seems to be confirming this earlier date, even the historical existence of the king Pygmalion seems to be looking more and more likely. His name was on the Nora stone that we discussed in relation to Sardinia. It's also been found on a gold pendant in an early Carthaginian grave. In the end, not all historians feel that Carthage's founding mythology aligns with any actual history. Most who discount the historicity of Elissa and her story say that it paints the Carthaginians in a decidedly negative light. In the story, they use subterfuge several times to flee Tyre, to steal the women of Cyprus, and then to circumvent the oxhide condition for the land deal in Africa. The theory is that this stereotype of Carthaginian merchants was a common one in latter-day Greece, and that the Greek historians who set down the Elissa story intended to portray the Phoenicians in a negative light. If the Carthaginians had played any role in telling this story, or if it contained any basis in actual history, surely it wouldn't portray the main characters so unkindly, would it? Ultimately, it's hard to know, again, the untangling of these ancient origin stories that were then passed down by later historians who had baked in prejudice against the foreigners that they were writing about, it makes everything just a little bit tough. And really, it sounds similar to a lot of modern history too, doesn't it? Everybody has their preconceptions and their prejudice built in. In the end, that is the story of Elissa and the founding of Carthage. It does seem to have some basis in historical reality, we're just not sure how much. What we are sure of is that Carthage was founded, somewhere in the same time frame that the other colonies were founded. Initially, it was just one among many. The myths say that it grew rapidly, and there's some evidence of this quick growth. But that belief could also just be backwards projection after the city had risen to its height of power and influence. No matter what theory you choose to back, you can't argue with the reality that the location of Carthage would prove to be ideal in the grand scheme of things. It's again impossible to say if the location Carthage occupied was purposefully chosen as the ideal site for a central hub, or it was just a lucky landing. Given that the Illus' story probably carries a large measure of apocryphal element, 
it seems that the location for Carthage was probably handpicked. Maybe also because of its proximity to the older Phoenician colony at Utica. No matter what, the location was hard to beat. Carthage sat smack in the middle of the east-west trade routes between Tyre, Hader, and every smaller port in between. It also sat at the southern terminus of a regional network within the Tyrrhenian Sea, which was enclosed by the front of the Italian boot, along with the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. We'll get a bit more into the Tyrrhenian Sea network and the various cultures that were plugged in there next time, as we start to look at the Greek colonization of the Mediterranean. Carthage, though, despite its prime location, didn't become the predominant city in the Phoenician world until Tyre began to decline. This decline began around 730 BCE, as we saw a little bit last time. This was the time frame when Assyria finally gave in to the urge to take control in every meaningful sense of the word. They left Tyre her symbolic independence but forbade her from trading with Egypt, and they strangled her free trade with the imposition of onerous regulations. Before Tyre finally succumbed to the pressure, long before actually, Carthage seems to have re-established her connections with the Phoenician mother city. It's possible that the connections were never in fact severed, that this perception is just rooted in the Elissa myth that Carthage was the settlement of Tyrian refugees who'd been running from Tyre's king. Either way, Diodorus leans toward a view that discounts the refugee element. He paints the Carthaginian founders as colonists, who, quote, held the custom to send to the god a tenth of all that was paid into the public revenue. So the Carthaginians essentially sent a tithe tribute to Tyre at first, but eventually they phased that out as Tyre's influence continued to decline. Last time, we sketched an outline of Tyre's decline as Assyria became more belligerent, so I don't want to rehash that discussion here today. Rather, I'll say simply that as the clock ticks down towards 700 BCE, Carthage begins to wax more powerful, while Tyre continues to slowly wane. In a sense, then, Carthage was founded as the new hope of the refugee Elissa, and as Tyre began to decline, the new city would become the new hope of the Phoenician trade network as a whole. See, I knew I could work the new hope, new city phrases in somewhere, but please do not ask me to use the rise of Carthage in metaphorical connection with Star Wars in any way. There's not much there to draw a parallel, at least not much that I could find or come up with. Let me know if you can think of one, though. Now, Carthage being the new hope is not to say that trade with Tyre ceased immediately, or that Carthage immediately became the central focus. The trend was certainly becoming more noticeable by 700 BCE, though. Next time, we will fill in some gaps regarding the other players involved in the Mediterranean scene around that date. We mentioned the early Greeks a bit previously. We saw how the Eubians were actually involved in trade with the Phoenician colonists. Next time, we'll focus more closely on the other early Greeks, 
the development of their colonial network, and their gradual growth into the Greeks that we typically think of. Before we get there, though, I want to spend the second half of today's episode taking a look at a pair of Phoenician shipwrecks from off the coast of modern-day Ashkelon, Israel. These are some of the oldest examples of Phoenician shipwrecks found so far. These two, unfortunately, are wrecks that long ago lost any trace of the ship hull itself. Underwater organisms disposed of any trace we could hope to study. This is also unfortunately the case with almost all of the Phoenician shipwrecks that have been found so far anywhere in the Mediterranean. Wrecks between 1000 BCE and 400 BCE are few and far between. There are a couple that we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, but not much has been published on the study of these wrecks, so there's not a lot of info that I can get my hands on anyway to be able to share with you. The bottom line is that the ships themselves in many of these Phoenician wreck sites are gone, and that the cargoes of the ships are the only thing that remain in their resting place. As I said, that's the case with the two shipwrecks off Ashkelon. The first one has been named the Elissa, after the Queen of Carthage, who we already have visited with quite a bit today. The second was given the name Tanit. Now, the goddess Tanit was a deity worshipped by the Phoenicians. She took on more significance in Carthage, while many other Phoenician colonies preferred the god Melkart instead. Borrowing her name for the Phoenician shipwreck is a bit of an inside joke, actually, since she was also one of the main deities worshipped by Phoenician and then later Punic mariners. They looked to her and to other gods and goddesses for protection. And in this particular case, I guess she decided to look the other way. Anyway, both of these wrecks leave no trace of their hull or timber, which would give us a window into the state of shipbuilding and relevant techniques there in the Phoenician world. The wrecks have been dated to the 8th century BCE, 800 to 700, mostly on the basis of their amphora cargo, which we'll also get into in a moment. Since the ships themselves have disintegrated, both wrecks were found because of the hull-shaped mounds of amphora on the sea floor. The circumstances of their discovery is also rather interesting, too. It happened in 1997, when a U.S. nuclear research sub was sent to the eastern Mediterranean to help the Israeli military in a search for the Dakar an Israeli diesel submarine that had been lost in the 60s and never found. The main goal of this mission wasn't accomplished. They didn't find the remains of the Dakar. But the U.S. submarine sonar did pick up the locations of three shipwrecks, two of them about 33 nautical miles offshore and resting in over 400 meters of water. Needless to say, this great depth and distance from shore made a dive to study the wrecks impossible. It's probably also why they hadn't been found previously. The initial find by the U.S. research sub was videotaped, though, and almost immediately after looking at the grainy video, archaeologists knew that they had Iron Age shipwrecks, 
this deduction based on the distinctive torpedo-shaped amphoras. Given that the military mission that found the Tanit and Alyssa was there for one reason only, it wasn't until 1999, two years later, that a research team returned to the wrecks to conduct further study. On the team was Robert Ballard, and with the team was the remotely operated vehicle, Jason, a prototype of which was used to remotely explore the interior of the Titanic wreck back in 1986. That's probably where you've heard Robert Ballard's name before, too. Over the course of the study on each wreck site, the crew set up high-tech transponders and other sensors to help them map the wrecks. They ended up with many photos and other data. They stitched it all together to form a digital mosaic image that gives a very accurate depiction of the amphora and other objects as they were distributed on the sea floor. Even back in 99, the technology was advanced enough that they mapped each entire wreck in only 12 hours apiece. The Tenet site was spread over an area of 4.5 by 11.5 meters, and the Elissa over an area of 5 by 12 meters. Both wrecks had about 400 amphora visible, but they undoubtedly had more buried beneath the top layer, since the mound of amphora grew in height near what would have been the ship's keel. It pretty much formed a reverse image of how they'd have rested within the vanished hull of the ship before it sank and disintegrated. The digital mapping work was done first, and then a handful of objects were recovered from each wreck in order to be studied up close. As they'd suspected from the initial photographs, the amphora proved to be like those taken from archaeological sites throughout Israel and Phoenicia. Similar amphora have been found only in connection with other Phoenician colony sites, and one proposed destination for the cargoes of each ship was the colony at Carthage. Similar examples of these amphora have been found at Carthage and have been dated to the city's early periods. So, as I said, it was on the basis of these amphora and their distinctive shape that the wrecks have been dated to the middle of the 8th century BCE. Even as Tyre began to suffer then, under Assyrian impression, ships were still active on the Mediterranean, ferrying cargoes of wine in amphoras between Tyre, her nearby neighbors, and the faraway colonies somewhere to the west. So not to get too technical in talking about the amphora at the wreck sites, but these particular jars were purpose-built for maritime transport. Their unofficial name, although I must say their most descriptive and easily remembered one, is torpedo amphora. They're called this because they're tall, narrow, and they have a bottom that's rounded to a point, thus making them easy to stack upright in the hold of a Phoenician ship. They weren't made to be stored on a flat surface, and if they were stored like that, perhaps on an ancient dock while the ship was being loaded, they'd have been laid on their side and stacked in an alternating fashion. Torpedo amphora like this were manufactured in Phoenician holdings during the mid-8th century BCE. Kilns where they were fired had been unearthed in Sarapta, and other evidence of amphora presence like these has been found in Tyre herself. 
The amphora were the main items on each wreck, but the research team also recovered some cooking pots, handmade bowls, and an incense stand from what they called the galley of each ship. What would have presumably been the crew's quarters at one end of the ship, where smaller cooking and personal effects types items were located in each wreck site distribution. The bowls and pots were typical to ships of that period, and all others. Sailors have always had to eat, obviously. The artifacts were typical of the time and region as well, but the incense stand is more unique to the aromatic offerings that Canaanite sailors would make to the protective deities during their voyages. There is a depiction of a Canaanite ship in a 14th century BCE Egyptian tomb, the tomb of Ken Amun, where a sailor on board the ship holds an incense burner and an offering cup in the air, his arms outstretched. He thus seems to be giving thanks to a god or goddess for the safe conclusion of their voyage. The incense stand and an offering cup were both recovered in the wreckage of the Elissa, which just adds more evidence to the theory that ancient Canaanite sailors had a pretty standard practice of invoking the protection of the deities before, during, and probably after their voyage. Beyond the deductions I've already outlined, the location of these wrecks over 30 nautical miles from shore leads to the conclusion that Phoenician merchant ships of this period took to the open water and aimed for their destination on a straight line, shortest route possible. This shouldn't surprise us, really. We've already seen how they could navigate by the stars, they had large seaworthy ships, especially the bathtub Gauloi ships. Their torpedo amphora cargo contained wine, presumably the finest wines of the regions around Phoenicia. And given the number of amphora in each wreck, it's probable that each ship carried over 10 tons of wine. The time frame of these wrecks, their Phoenician origin and crew, their cargo of wine, it's all amazingly in line with the Old Testament passage where the prophet Ezekiel pronounces his prophecy regarding the great city of Tyre. The prophecy is from at least a few centuries after the Tanit and Elissa would have gone down in the deep sea off Ashkelon, but I'd like to read the passage anyway. It's likely that the dynamics at play during Ezekiel's day were similar to those of earlier Phoenicia, and as Tyre had begun to decline in our narrative, this passage is all too appropriate. He mentions wine being shipped from Helbun, and the east wind that sinks the ships of Tyre. This passage then is Ezekiel chapter 27 from the King James Version of the Old Testament. I just love the Old English feel of this version. And it says the following. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Now, thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. And say unto Tyre, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which art a merchant of the people for many isles, thus saith the Lord God, O Tyre, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas, 
thy builders have perfected thy beauty. They have made all thy shipboards of fir trees of Senner. They have taken cedars from Lebanon to make masts for thee. Of the oaks of Bashan have they made thine oars. The company of the Asherites have made thy benches of ivory, brought out of the isles of Chittim. Fine linen with broidered work from Egypt was that which thou spreadst forth to be thy sail. Blue and purple from the isles of Elisha was that which covered thee. The inhabitants of Zidon and Arvad were thy mariners. Thy wise men, O Tyre, that were in thee were thy pilots. The ancients of Gebel and the wise men thereof were in thee thy caulkers. And the ships of the sea with their mariners were in thee to occupy thy merchandise. They of Persia and of Lud and of Phut were in thine army, thy men of war. They hanged the shield and helmet in thee, they set forth thy comeliness. The men of Arvad with thine army were upon thy walls round about, and the Gamadims were in thy towers. They hanged their shields upon thy walls round about. They have made thy beauty perfect. Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of all kinds of riches, with silver, iron, tin, and lead. They traded in thy fairs. Javan, Tubal, and Meshech, they were thy merchants. They traded the persons of men and vessels of brass in thy market. They of the house of Togarma traded in thy fairs with horses and horsemen and mules. The men of Dedan were thy merchants. Many isles were the merchandise of thine hand. They brought thee for a present horns of ivory and ebony. Syria was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of the wares of thy making. They occupied in thy fairs with emeralds, purple, and broidered work, and fine linen, and coral, and agate. Judah and the lands of Israel they were thy merchants, they traded in thy market wheat of minneth, and panag, and honey, and oil, and balm. Damascus was thy merchant in the multitude of the wares of thy making, for the multitude of all riches, in the wine of helben, and white wool. Dan also, and Javan, going to and fro, occupied in thy fairs. Bright iron, cassia, and calamus were in thy market. Dedan was thy merchant in precious clothes for chariots. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, they occupied with thee in lambs and rams and goats. In these were they thy merchants. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah, they were thy merchants. They occupied in thy fairs with chief of all spices and with all precious stones and gold. Heron and Kenna and Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Asher, and Kilmad were thy merchants. These were thy merchants in all sorts of things, in blue clothes and broidered work, and in chests of rich apparel, bound with cords, and made of cedar among thy merchandise. The ships of Tarshish did sing of thee in thy market, and thou wast replenished, and made very glorious in the midst of the seas. Thy rowers have brought thee into great waters, the east wind hath broken thee in the midst of the seas. Thy riches and thy fares, thy merchandise, thy mariners and thy pilots, 
thy cockers and thy occupiers of merchandise, and all thy men of war that are in thee, and in all thy company which is in the midst of thee, shall fall into the midst of the seas in the day of thy ruin. The suburbs shall shake at the sound of the cry of thy pilots. And all that handle the oar, the mariners and all the pilots of the sea, shall come down from their ships, they shall stand upon the land, and shall cause their voice to be heard against thee, and shall cry bitterly, and shall cast up dust upon their heads, they shall wallow themselves in the ashes. And they shall shake themselves utterly bald for thee, and gird them with sackcloth, and they shall weep for thee with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. And in their wailing they shall take up a lamentation for thee, and lament over thee, saying, What city is like Tyre, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? When thy wares went forth out of the seas, thou fillest many people. Thou didst enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of thy riches and of thy merchandise. In the time when thou shalt be broken by the seas in the depths of the waters, thy merchandise and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall. All the inhabitants of the isles shall be astonished at thee, and their kings shall be sore afraid. They shall be troubled in their countenance. The merchants among the people shall hiss at thee. Thou shalt be a terror and never shalt be any more. In a sense, this prophecy had come true before it was even uttered by Ezekiel. The great overland trade of the east that was described would cease to be funneled through Tyre and on to Phoenician ships bound for the west. The Assyrians would see to that. Carthage would quickly rise to take top billing in the Phoenician world, so much so that historians cease to use the term Phoenician. They begin to use the term Punic to delineate the connections to Carthage as the predominant power in what used to be a Phoenician world. I think that's a good place to put a bookmark in things for today. Before I wrap up, I wanted to share with you a relatively new podcast, one that I already listen to religiously, and one that I think you'll really enjoy if you enjoy this podcast enough to have stuck around for 25 episodes now. The name of the podcast is Literature and History, and, well, it covers just what it says it does. It does much more than simply cover literature and history, though. The producer of the podcast, Mr. Doug Metzger, weaves literature together with the historical context, the philosophical mindset, even the religious elements at play in the great works of literature that survive to this day. Mr. Metzger does have a PhD in literature, so he brings credentials to the podcasting game also, but he doesn't do so in a heavy-handed or pretentious way. Not at all, really. His presentation is smooth, engaging, and well-organized. He's even a musician, and I really enjoy the background ambiance that his music lends to the podcast. So far, it has covered a lot of the ground that we've also covered. Ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, Mycenaean Greece, with the Iliad and Odyssey. And now it's into a look at the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. All of these periods contain gems of ancient literature. Take the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish, the Book of the Dead from Egypt, even Hesiod's Works and Days, which we'll touch on in our next episode. 
Literature and History is a vastly entertaining and educational podcast that will fill your brain with awesome stories and knowledge without you even noticing if you're not careful. It's that entertaining, honestly. So check it out and tell Doug that the Maritime History Podcast sent you. I'll have links on the show notes and on the website, as I normally do. Lastly today, a few thank yous to our most recent members and iTunes reviewers. I greatly appreciate everyone who takes the time and makes the investment in doing either or both of those. Our most recent crew member additions are Steven and Mehmet. Thanks again, both of you. I hope that you find the accommodations here on our ship of podcasts to be amenable. My gratitude also to iTunes users Nancy RC and GPH Sudoku for the humbling and gracious reviews. Each one helps keep the podcast somewhat afloat on the tempestuous waters that are the iTunes podcast charts. As I think I alluded to in the middle of today's episode, next time we'll be taking a look at the other main players involved in the development of the Mediterranean during the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. The early Greek colonizers, the growth of the Greek cities back from their Dark Age slump, also the Etruscans in Italy. These two main players, along with the Carthaginians, will be our main trio for much of the near future on the podcast, and the plot is gradually thickening as we build to some of the most iconic sea battles and maritime action of the ancient world. Until next time then, and with that to look forward to, fair winds and following seas. Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. If you like what you've heard, please visit the website for more info, helpful maps and images, plus membership options. Also, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Reviews really are the lifeblood of podcasts and help keep us near the top of the charts where other people are a little bit more likely to find us and maybe catch the maritime history bug. Oh, and if your plans for today include shopping on Amazon, maybe take 10-15 extra seconds to visit the podcast website. Just scroll to the bottom of any page and click on the Amazon orange banner. From there, you just go to the Amazon homepage where you can shop like normal, but you support the podcast by doing so. Nothing changes for you, but we get a small percentage of every purchase you make through that link. It's a simple, free way to support maritime history in podcast form. Thank you so much, everyone. It makes a huge difference to independent podcast producers like me and all the others that are out there as well. Support them, too, if you can. I hope you'll join me next time and every time thereafter as we progress through the stories of maritime history, here on the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>